Dr. Swanson, Dr. Denstep, members and guests, it's really my great honor to give this year's Journal of Urology Lecture entitled The Promise and the Pitfalls of Large Database Studies, Lessons for the Clinician. As per AUA policy, I have no relevant conflict of interest to disclose. We have clearly entered the era of the large administrative database. Why are we here? Well, increasingly powerful computer technology and the advent of the electronic medical record have led to the digitalization of healthcare. At this point, clinician visits, diagnostic tests, testing, patient diagnoses, therapeutic interventions, and various outcomes are all captured in administrative databases for the purpose of healthcare delivery and provider payment. These databases can be used for research. And in fact, they are now being widely used for clinical research across all of urology. So we really need to understand the strengths and the limitations of these resources. My talk today will cover two points. First, we'll talk about the promise of large administrative databases. We'll talk about the unique strengths of these databases, and I'll show you examples of studies that have pushed our field forward and affected clinical care. We'll also discuss the pitfalls of these large administrative databases. I'll go over the limitations of these databases and show you examples of studies illustrating the underlying biases that can be introduced when these databases are not properly used. So let's start with the promise of large administrative databases. What are some of the strengths of these databases? Well, they have a number of them. First of all, the representativeness of routine clinical care that's seen in these databases is more reflective of the real world and sometimes comes up with different results in, say, clinical trials or prospective observational studies. A second strength of these databases is that they tend to be very large, and this large size allows for the study of rare events. A third strength is that they often allow for longer-term follow-up because data are collected longitudinally over many, many years. They're often available at low or no cost, and that allows, and that they avoid the effort of primary data collection. And these last two points are really appealing, particularly to our trainees, as they can easily get these data and answer clinical questions. These databases have clearly improved the academic productivity uh, across all of urology, although I would add that this is somewhat of a double-edged sword because some of the papers that we have published perhaps are not of the highest quality. So let's talk about what these databases are really well suited for given these strengths. I think they're very well study, uh, uh, suited for studies of patterns of care and utilization of various therapies. They're good for real world comparative effectiveness studies. They're very good for identifying adverse therapeutic effects of treatments, particularly rare effects. And they're good at identifying patients most at risk for these negative outcomes. And they're pretty good at addressing certain health policy and cost issues. And I'm now gonna show you an example of each of these uh, from urology. Let's look at the value of these databases for assessing patterns of care. And this example comes from the field of BPH, looking at TURP rates within BPH. This study is from John Wasson and colleagues from the Prostate Port, which was funded by ARC in the 1990s. This study was published in the journal in 2000. It is a classic study in our field. What Dr. Wasson did was he used data from the 20% Medicare sample from 1991 to 1997. He only looked at men over age 65. He identified TURP procedures by CPT codes. 
Now on this graph, on the y-axis, you see TURP rate per 1,000 men. And on the x-axis, you see year of study. And you see the three different age groups uh, represented by three different lines. And you'll note that from 1980 to about 1991, TURP rates were relatively flat. And then in 1991, in all three age groups, you see a rapid decline. This really showed, uh, this really uh, demonstrated what many of us were seeing in clinical practice, that we were doing fewer TURPs and allowed us to ask why. And the reason was because of two things. Number one, the introduction of effective oral agents for BPH, specifically alpha blockers and 5-ARIs. And number two, the rise of PSA screening. Many patients who previously would have had a TURP were now undergoing radical prostatectomy. This classic study formed the basis of future studies and really helped us to understand what our workforce needs were in, in urology and what we needed to train. Now, let me show you another example of one of the uh, uses of this of databases. And this is an example of uh, using these databases to compare real world effectiveness of therapies. And this example comes from renal cell carcinoma. This is a study by Ray Tan and colleagues. It's about 10 years old that was published in JAMA. And what they basically did um, was that they looked at the uh, compared effectiveness of radical versus partial nephrectomy. They used data from SEER Medicare from 1992 to 2007. They took all patients with clinical stage T1A kidney cancer who underwent either a radical or a partial nephrectomy. Now understand that SEER Medicare does not have data around size of tumor, nor does it have data around difficulty of resection, which is a limitation of that data set, but still clinical stage is pretty good. They did do a nice job controlling for comorbidity using diagnosis codes and established methods. And the two outcomes they looked at were overall and disease-specific mortality. And on the top graph you see here, all-cause mortality. And you can see that radical nephrectomy had higher all-cause mortality than partial nephrectomy. And this was statistically significant. Below that, you can see kidney cancer mortality. And you see there again, that radical nephrectomy had more kidney cancer mortality than partial nephrectomy. Now, you have to understand that these are unadjusted Kaplan-Meier curves. What happens when you adjust for things like uh, comorbidity, age, et cetera? And here you can see that in this slide, when you had the adjusted models, patients treated with partial nephrectomy had significantly lower risk of overall mortality, a highly significant hazard ratio of 0.54. And this is obviously due to the fact that we're sparing nephrons, which helps them uh, ward off other diseases and improves their overall mortality. But importantly, this study showed that there were no significant differences in kidney cancer-specific mortality. As you can see here, the 95% confidence interval did not exclude unity. And when you look at the graphs here on the right, you can see that at all three time points, two, five, and eight years, predicted survival probabilities were better for partial nephrectomy shown in the light gray than radical nephrectomy shown in the dark gray. This study really was conclusive in showing that partial nephrectomy was very safe from a cancer standpoint and was probably better for patients because we are sparing nephrons. And the size of this study allowed us to reach much uh, more concrete uh, conclusions than any randomized clinical trial could have. Another great use of administrative databases is its use to discover unexpected adverse effects of therapy. And this example comes from prostate cancer, specifically the risk of 
uh, osteoporosis and fracture with the use of androgen deprivation therapy. This study is from Vahak and Shahini and colleagues in Michigan. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine 16 years ago. It is a classic study in urology and one of the most important studies in prostate cancer, in my opinion. Uh, uh, Dr. Shanian and colleagues looked at 50,000 men over age 65 diagnosed with prostate cancer from 1992 to 1997 in the SEER Medicare data set. They assessed fracture risk in men who received ADT versus those who did not. And importantly, they performed a dose response analysis of fracture-free survival as it relates to ADT dose, and they calculated number needed to harm. And here you can see in this graph on the y-axis, unadjusted fracture-free survival, and on the x-axis, you can see years after diagnosis, and you see a number of lines. In black, you see the line of prostate cancer survivors who received no androgen deprivation therapy. In gold, you can see prostate cancer survivors who had one to four doses of a GnRH agonist. In purple, below that, you see five to eight doses of GnRH agonist. In gray, below that, you see greater than nine doses. And in red, you see men who underwent orchiectomy. And as you can see here, there's clearly a relationship between dose and worse fracture-free survival. And you can see that orchiectomy approximates GnRH agonist long-term doses. Importantly, you can see this further documented in number needed to harm, which Dr. Shahini only limited to men age 70 to 74, but clearly there is a dose response curve. This was really the first study to show a dose response curve and it had a profound effect on our prescribing patterns in ADT as we suddenly realized there was an additional uh, risk to this therapy that we weren't really aware of beforehand. The final study I wanna show you to underscore the promises of databases looks at the impact of these databases on assessing health policy interventions. And this is an example from bladder cancer. This study was performed by Brock O'Neill when he was a fellow at our institution and it was published in the Journal of the National Cancer Institute in 2016. Some of you may be aware that in 2005, Medicare implemented a change in reimbursement around minor cystoscopic procedures, specifically cystoscopic biopsies, in hopes of moving these procedures out of inpatient and outpatient facilities and into urologist offices. What they did was they increased reimbursement if the procedure was done in this setting in 2005. Brock wanted to see if this actually is what occurred. So he looked at the 5% Medicare sample from 2001 to 2013. He identified roughly 20,000 patients who underwent a minor cystoscopic procedure using CPT codes during the study period. He assessed the location of the minor cystoscopic procedure and also to URBT rates in response to the new reimbursement policy. Now, I know this is a busy slide, but let me try to walk you through it. You can see these bars down below, and in purple, you can see the reimbursement rate for performing a minor uh, cystoscopic procedure, either in the uh, inpatient or outpatient facility. And you can see that that remained steady throughout the study period. In pink, you can see what urologists got paid for doing it in their office. And you can see a large jump from 2004 to 2005, and then a decline after that. Now let's talk about what happened to uh, the procedures. Not surprisingly, this line in red shows the number of procedures done in the office setting. And there's a market jump in 2005 when urologists were paid more for doing it here. Now, Medicare had hoped there would then be a concurrent decline in the number of procedures done in facilities. But this purple line shows that that was not the case. In fact, this policy had an unintended consequence. Instead of moving the procedures out of the facility, what it actually ended up doing was causing urologists to do more procedures. 
Now, you might argue that, in fact, they found more cancer, but that blue line there shows you TURBT rates, and in fact, that's pretty stable throughout the study period. Medicare took notice of this study, and you'll notice they haven't tried a similar uh, policy since that time. Another important use of these data sets. We've talked about some of the real promise of these data sets. Now let's talk about the pitfalls. These databases definitely have some limitations. They have issues around data validity that may bias or invalidate conclusions. They may have missing data that can bias results and affect generalizability. They, uh, some researchers will use inappropriate outcome measures that can result in incorrect findings. And of course, everything is about statistics. If it's not done properly, you can get uh, incorrect or conflicting findings. And this is much more pronounced in these sort of data sets because of the large numbers. Let's start talking about data validity. I think many of you have heard the term garbage in, garbage out, or GIGO. If you haven't, you can see the definition right there on the right. For me, what counts here is the slide, the slide on the, the picture on the left. And there you can see with GIGO, your analysis is only as good as your data. And if your data are poor, it's problematic. And we recently had a very close call around this. In June 2015, the NCI removed all of the PSA data from the SEER program and the associated SEER Medicare programs. They did this in response to problems that they observed. Uh, they noted that the there was reporting of inaccurate PSA values and misinterpretation of PSA variables. They found inaccurate data entry and transposed decimal points. So imagine a patient had a PSA of 4.3, but it was entered as 43 or worse, 430. They were worried that this could affect up to 18% of cases. Now think for a minute, given the number of prostate cancer studies performed, which use CRCR Medicare data, and there are a lot of these studies, and almost all of them use PSA for risk adjustment, the impact of invalid PSA data in the SEER data program could be profound on our literature. We could have literally dozens, if not hundreds of studies, which were basically incorrect. Now, to the credit of the NCI, they reviewed 50,000 prostate cancer cases in SEER diagnosed in 2012. They found four possible types of errors, and they're shown here, implied decimal point errors, coding errors, non-significant errors, and changes or errors due to unknown codes. And the good news is that 94.15% of cases did not have any meaningful changes. So this was what I call a near miss um, uh, and something that could have been much worse. And here you can see what they were most concerned about was this was going to have a huge effect on the, uh, their uh, collaborative staging system. And here the stage three and stage fours, with the, which are the advanced diseases, they were all advanced disease, they were all correct. None of them were moved into the localized setting. And the localized cases, stage one and stage T, uh, 2A and B, all of them uh, stayed within localized. They did not move to advanced disease, although there were some minor changes in the subgroups. So this is something that shows you just how important having good data are in these data sets. Another problem with data in these data sets is missing data. And again, I'm going to take an example from prostate cancer around prostate cancer risk stratification. This is uh, work from Sean Elliott and the group in Michigan, published in the journal in 2012. As we all know, PSA, T-stage, and Gleason score are required by most risk stratification systems in prostate cancer. Now, if you are missing data points, even one data point in this, it's going to prevent researchers from assigning a patient to a risk group so that you're either going to have to drop the patient or impute the data. Now, if the, missing, if the data are missing at random, that's not that big a deal. But if they're not missing at random, that can introduce bias into the study. So to look at this, 
Elliott and colleagues studied 132,000 men in SEER diagnosed from 2002 to 2016 with prostate cancer to see the proportion of patients missing these data elements and to see if the data elements were missing at random. Well, two-thirds of the patients, 67%, had all the data. But that means one out of three patients had at least one missing data element, and some had more than one. So that's clearly problematic. But of course, if the data are missing at random, it's not that big a deal. But unfortunately, they're not. What Elliott and colleagues did was that they then looked at adjusted odds ratios for having unclassified Domeka risk groups. And as you can see here, uh, the risk of missing data varied with age and varied with race. So any study that was looking at the effect of age and, and outcomes in prostate cancer or race and outcomes in prostate cancer may have been biased if the problem with missing data wasn't addressed properly. A huge pitfall for administrative databases. Another problem with these databases is inappropriate outcomes. And again, I'm gonna use an example from prostate cancer, mostly because it's the field I'm most familiar with, but I also think it's most appropriate. We also know that, we all know that sexual urinary and bowel dysfunction are common side effects after therapy for localized prostate cancer. Numerous researchers have used administrative databases to compare the incidence of these outcomes after various therapies for prostate cancer. The thing is, is that patient report outcomes are rarely included in administrative databases. So these researchers have used proxy endpoints, things like diagnosis codes and medical or surgical therapies used to treat these problems to really get at the incidence of these outcomes. But the thing, but the problem becomes that the, using this approach likely results in the underreporting of these endpoints, and it can lead to biased study results. And I'm not going to point out examples of "quote unquote" bad studies. Some of you may be familiar with them, but I am going to point out an example of how bad the problem is. This is a study from Tollefsen et al. at the Mayo Clinic, published in the journal 10 years ago. They looked at 562 patients who underwent radical prostatectomy at their institution from 04 to 07. All of these patients completed validated and reliable PRO instruments. These results were then compared to administrative claims data using ICD-9 and HICTA codes for urinary incontinence and erectile dysfunction. Now, in this table, you can see uh, the various definitions of incontinence or erectile dysfunction based on patient report outcomes. And then you can see the sensitivity and the specificity of the codes for picking this up. And you can see the sensitivity was just not very good. It varied from as low as 0.11 to as high as 0.59 across the two domains. Now, at least in incontinence, if you were diagnosed by the codes, it was fairly specific, but these codes are not adequate for picking up these outcomes. And we've seen too many studies using these databases to try to get at urinary and sexual and bowel dysfunction after treatment for localized prostate cancer. And we have to stop this because it's just not an appropriate endpoint. Finally, I want to wrap up by talking about problems of statistical methods. And I want to show you an example again from prostate cancer. I want to talk about two ecological studies published the same year in the same journal that assess the incidence of prostate cancer distant metastases in response to the USPSDF screening recommendation. Both studies used the SEER database. In fact, the only difference was that one study used one more year of data than the other. Who and colleagues used the SEER data from 2004 to 2013? Jamal and colleagues used SEER data from 2005 to 2013. The incidence of prostate cancer distant disease at diagnosis was the endpoint of interest. These are the results from the WHO study. As you can see here, uh, that orange line rep represents men over age 75, and you can see that it's going up 
around from 2011 to 2013. So Dr. Hu concluded that the incidence of metastatic prostate cancer is increasing in men over age 75. This is a study from Jamal and colleagues. You can see the older men and uh, graphs C and D below. And you can see the lines there are fairly flat. They did not see an increase. So they concluded that the USPSTF recommendation appears to have had little impact on the incidence of metastatic disease in older men. Two, using the same database, the same data, two completely conflicting results. Why do you get these different answers? Well, who used Seer collaborative stage while Jamal used summary stage and who used quarterly incidence while Jamal used annual incidence. These minor differences in statistical approach can result in conflicting findings. It really underscores the importance of including a biostatistician when you're using these data sets. And so I'm gonna wrap up by going over what we've talked about today. There is promise and there's pitfall in the, pitfalls in these data sets. These large administrative databases can be useful resources for clinical research but poorly planned or executed studies using these data sets can result in the dissemination of an invalid results and may negatively impact clinical care. I really think we need to be more thoughtful and employ the most meticulous research methods and highest standards when undertaking and reviewing studies using these databases. And that's on all of us, researchers, readers, and journal editors to really raise the bar for these databases. Before I go, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, put in a word of thanks for a job well done to Jay Smith. As many of you know, Dr. Smith has served as the editor of the Journal of Urology for the last six years. During his tenure, he's raised the impact factor of the journal. He's really modernized it. He's brought it out to uh, uh, put it out on social media and brought it into the 21st century. Um, and so really, I think on my part, and I think I'm a part of the entire urologic community, Thank you so much, Dr. Smith, for a job well done. And Rob Siemens, good luck to you. You have big shoes to fill. I want to thank you all very much for your attention.